Good morning. The scripture reading today comes from 1 Kings 17, 1 to 16. Now Elijah, who was from Tizvah in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kirith Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and count beside Kirith Brook, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon, and I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, Bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house and I only have a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said, and she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. And there was always enough flour and oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Thanks, Sandy. You said some of those names and locations better than I will for the rest of this morning. So uh, at least now you know how they're properly said and you can just assume that I'm getting it right. So here we are. After 11 weeks, we have journeyed through kind of the first half of the Old Testament where we came alongside 10 Old Testament characters to learn about courageous faith. I wonder how many of the ten you might be able to name this morning. A little pop quiz? Anyone? Come on, there's got to be a few. This is the interactive part. I always say that. There's at least one question where I give you the opportunity to do some of the speaking, and I'll be quiet, and then I'll speak, and you'll be quiet. No, I'm just kidding. Um, what do we know? We know Noah, right? Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Deborah, David, Solomon, And then last but not least, Elijah. If you receive Pastor Ken's weekly email, and if you don't, you really should. You can simply sign up when the friendship book comes through later and said weekly email or or, uh, just make a note or email them or you can sign up on the website as well. Um, But it's uh, in that that email this week, he kind of tipped you off that we were going to look at Elijah this morning. 
And he called Elijah one of the most colorful prophets in the Old Testament. And I have to say that I really enjoyed studying and reading again, mostly through three chapters in 1 Kings, chapters 17, 18, and 19. Now, there's more written about Elijah, but I settled on these three chapters. Yes, three chapters, you heard me right. Because there was more than enough great content here for us to consider. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to 1 Kings chapter 7, where we will start our journey today with the verses that Sandy read for us. And as we've been considering the courageous faith of these individuals, we've also been learning about the history of the Israelites, from the promises to Abraham, to the exodus out of Egypt, to the entry into the promised land, to the conquest of the land, to life under the judges, and finally, to being led by a king. A series of kings, actually. And throughout the history of the Israelites, they cycled through periods of great faith, um, obedience, commitment to God, followed then by a season of disobedience and unbelief. And it was during those seasons that God would allow life to become very uncomfortable for them. And when they eventually cried out to him, he would, because of his amazing grace and overwhelming mercy, rescue them. Now, one of the themes that I have seen throughout the series of these messages is that it is not so much about the person's faith, but rather the object of their faith. As we've studied these lives, we've discovered that the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is entirely trustworthy, completely adequate, and overwhelmingly good and kind and gracious and loving. So while we will see today how Elijah interacts with and expresses his faith in God, we will once again learn more about the God whom we serve and worship. We are going to discover in these these three things, that God provides miraculously, that God answers dramatically, and that God speaks quietly. So let's look at the first one there, God provides miraculously. This is chapter 17. Elijah enters into Israelite history during the reign of King Ahab. And there's no better way to paint the picture of life under Ahab than to read a few verses from 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 30. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship to Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. That's a pretty clear picture, isn't it? Ahab did more evil than any of the other kings before him. And what was so evil is that he introduced Baal worship into Israel. And God is rightfully ticked with this development. And so he sends Elijah with a message to King Ahab where he introduces to him a divinely ordained drought. He says in verse 1, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. And it's this prophetic message that sets the stage for Elijah, who was sent to oppose the, uh, both Baal worship and those who worship Baal. 
And the conflict between God and Baal heightens when you consider that Baal was considered the storm god. He was supposed to have authority over the rain. So if there's no rain and instead a severe drought, you have to wonder about the power of Baal. And in fact, Baal was powerless to provide rain. Now, in contrast, our God was not only able to withhold the rain, tradition says that it was for about three and a half years. Look at how he miraculously provides for Elijah. God tells Elijah where he should go hide, and he's going to hide for his own protection because Ahab was furious with him. It's kind of a a classic case of let's shoot the messenger. So he tells him, uh, go hide by a brook, and there you're going to be able to drink from the brook. And then think about this. He says... Eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Just let that settle in for a bit. Like that, that, that's kind of a wow factor for me. God is able to use a raven to miraculously sustain Elijah. Think about that for a moment. A raven, a bird. Similar to a crow, a little bit bigger. They're not really known to be predators to go out and get food. They tend to scavenge for food. They eat already dead birds and animals feasting on what is left over. And it's this bird that God commanded to serve as carriers of food to Elijah. In fact, in verse 6, we learn that they brought him meat and bread twice each day. So while the nation is drying up, drought is is a reality, famine is going to be the result, Elijah is drinking and eating like a king. It's incredible, isn't it? But remember, this is the same God who fed the entire nation of Israel bread and meat when they were wandering in the wilderness. And eating meat every day yet alone twice a day, wasn't very common. So Elijah is being well cared for here by a raven. Eventually the brook, uh, or the drought dries up, uh, or sorry, eventually the drought impacts Elijah too as the brook that that was providing his drinking water dries up. But God has another plan to miraculously provide for Elijah. Excuse me. He tells Elijah to... Go and live in the village of Seraphath, near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. So think about it. First God commands the ravens to feed Elijah. Now he instructs or commands a widow to do the same thing. In the very heartland of Baal worship, no less. So Elijah goes there, and when he arrives, he sees a widow gathering sticks, and he asks her for a cup of water and a bite of bread. The widow responds by saying that she doesn't have a single piece of bread in the house, that she only has a handful of flour and even just a little cooking oil. But the full impact of the drought is felt in her next sentence, verse 12. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. Think for a moment about the desperation that this woman felt. 
She was planning to use that last bit of flour, that last bit of cooking oil, to cook one last meal, and then she was fully expecting that she and her son would die of starvation. It's an incredible conversation, really, because then Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just, just what you've said. And I love this. But make a little bread for me first. Elijah is asking this widow to take a huge step of faith. Think about it. She's desperate, and here he is asking a mama with all of her maternal instincts who has just told him she only has enough flour and oil to prepare one last meal to feed him before her own meal. He is really asking her to give everything that she has. But this request is not without a promise because Elijah tells her, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. In other words, feed me and then feed your son and yourself and you will never run out of flour and olive oil. And so the widow is faced with a clear choice. Do I believe the word of the Lord spoken through Elijah? And do I have the faith necessary to accept and believe that message? Or don't I? What if I cook Elijah some bread and my containers are then empty and stay empty? then my son and I are going to die without even that last meal. What if? Isn't that the question we often ask ourselves? God promises this and we say, yeah, but what if he doesn't come through? Courageous faith is saying yes to what God asks of us regardless of the fear that is causing us to ask, what if? And really, it is fear that keeps us from totally obeying God and putting our faith in his promises. Look at the choice then that the widow made, verse 15. So she did as Elijah said. She did as Elijah said. Isn't that awesome? And what happened? Did she die? Nope. She and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. I love it. I mean, here God again miraculously provides, and this time the provision is ongoing. There's always going to be enough flour and oil for you to cook bread. And so in the middle of a pagan kingdom, a widow lays her very life on the line, places her faith in God's word, and realizes that truthful obedience Trustful obedience, excuse me, to the word of God is the way that leads to life. Oh yeah, there's another miracle. The son does become sick. He actually dies. And Elijah prays to God for his life and God restores life to the child. I mean, nothing major. (laughs) Not for God anyway. But look at how the woman responds. Now I know for sure that you are a man of God and the Lord truly speaks through you. 
And while this chapter is all about God providing miraculously time and time and time again, the ravens, the widow, the, the never-ending supply of flour and olive oil, the sun brought back to life, those are the obvious ones. But isn't God speaking and revealing himself to Elijah a miraculous provision as well? I mean, I love the pattern that is found throughout this chapter. God speaks and Elijah does what he says or says what he is told to say. God would have told him, to, told him what to say to Ahab, so he says it. God tells Elijah, go to the east. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. Then God tells Elijah, go and live in the village of Sarabath. And so he went. And this is what God says. The pattern is that God speaks and Elijah listens and responds in obedience. And so Elijah is demonstrating faith every time he hears from God and relays that message on to someone else. Friends, God still speaks today. And he speaks to us primarily through his word. And, and this book, this, this is no ordinary book. This is God's word. And he speaks to us through his word. And when we hear the Holy Spirit speak into our lives, we can go to the word to confirm it because he's never ever going to con contradict themselves. And God has provided it for us to feed us and to nurture us. And when we study it and meditate on his word, we can say, as the psalmist says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. And God leads us and guides us through his word. He protects us through his word. He shows us right and wrong through his word. Again, the psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is completely reliable and trustworthy. And God has miraculously provided his word. And every time we take him at his word, we demonstrate courageous faith. But it means that we have to be in the word. That there is no substitute. We find a, a pattern or a plan for daily scripture reading. Maybe we invest in a good study Bible so that not only do we read God's word, we can then look at it if there's something that we don't understand, that we can have some, some helpful explanation. Or we use a life journal and we record some of the things that God is teaching us through his word. But that is how God provides for us. And he feeds us and nurtures us through his word. Well, let's move on in, to chapter 18 and look at how God answers dramatically. Chapter 18 opens with, once again, the Lord giving Elijah directions. Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. And so what would you expect from Elijah? So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now, there's no mention that the people of Israel had repented and cried out to God. In this instance, it is God who takes the initiative and extends grace to them. And chapter 18 is full of drama and is likely the best-known event in the life of Elijah. The drought and the resulting famine have made life totally miserable for Israel. And Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, perhaps in an attempt to, to please Baal so that he would send rain, she starts to kill the prophets of the Lord. And in spite of the danger, Elijah goes to Ahab, who sees Elijah as the cause of Israel's troubles, but Elijah responds and says, I'm not the troublemaker here. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. It was Ahab's disobedience 
not Elijah or even the drought that was the source of Israel's troubles. And then Elijah presents a challenge to Ahab in verse 19 of chapter 18. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. And they did. And Elijah stands and presents to them a very clear choice. How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. That's the choice that we make. We either give ourselves wholeheartedly to God, or we don't. And aren't we often faced with the same clear choice at times? Do we wholeheartedly give ourselves to God, surrender to him? Or, or, or do we have our own little idols that take our time and attention away from God? Like the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And we know that tension, don't we? That, that, that if left to our own devices, the, that we, our tendency naturally is to drift a little bit, to move away from God. And so we have to be so intentional about coming back to God. And as the next line in him says, here's my heart, oh God, take and seal it. I want to be wholeheartedly, unreservedly committed and dedicated to you. And so Elijah's challenge is clear and direct. He says, let's build an altar, let's sacrifice a bull, and then let's call on our respective gods. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood, he is the true God. And so here's Elijah standing by himself, while there are combined 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, the, the, the numbers themselves just underscore the overwhelming odds against his success. I find it always interesting that Elijah lets them go first. I mean, this is a demonstration of faith, isn't it? I mean, he knew that this wasn't going to work and turn out very well for them. And, and so he said, oh, go ahead. What if their God did answer with fire? I mean, after all, Baal well, was the storm God and was thought to not only have power over the rain, which we've already learned he didn't, but also control over fire and lightning. Oh, I love this event, not just because of the drama, but I so enjoy when Elijah starts to mock the prophets of Baal. This kind of sarcasm is right up my alley. I mean, he's, he's kind of like the ultimate trash talker here all of a sudden. And he totally ridicules Baal and he taunts the prophets of Baal. Baal hasn't answered them yet. And in spite of the fact that they had been calling on him from morning, the scripture says, to noontime. They've been praying. They've been dancing. They've been doing everything that they can to try to get Baal's attention. And so Elijah starts to suggest, disrespectfully I might add, reasons as to why they aren't getting an answer. Shout louder! I mean, what is he, hard of hearing? Perhaps he is daydreaming. This, one's, this is my favorite. Or he is relieving himself. Some of your translations will probably say he's busy. I mean, when, when, when your kids answer the phone call and you're in the bathroom doing your business, what do they say? They don't say, oh, just a second, he's relieving himself. They say, he's busy, can you call you later? I like that. Maybe he is away on a trip. 
No, a God who travels, a God who's on vacation. Or maybe he's asleep. In other words, you know, a real God would not be limited in any of these ways. And despite going to the extreme of self-mutilation in an attempt to manipulate Bill to act, there was no sound, no reply, no response. No answer. Then it was Elijah's turn. He rebuilt the altar. He dug a trench around it. He piled wood up, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces of the bull on the wood. And then he really shows his faith and confidence in God to answer with fire by taking four large jars of water and pouring it over the offering and the wood. And he does that a second time. And then even a third time. So 12 jars of water poured over the, the bull that was there for the sacrifice on the altar. And by, the time the, by this time now, the water was running all around the altar and it even filled some of the trench that he had dug. Everything is completely soaked. Do you ever go camping and it starts to rain? What's the very first thing you do? Make sure the wood doesn't get wet. You bring it in. You, you want to set it aside because you know wet wood doesn't burn. And since everything is saturated with water, there's absolutely no possibility now of just natural combustion because wet wood doesn't burn. And Elijah is making it absolutely clear that if there is fire, it has to be God. There's no other explanation. So Elijah has this simple prayer and he gives evidence of a great faith and confidence that God will answer. No what ifs here. I, I think there would be for me. I don't think I would have used the water. <laughs> I, 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 but here's what Elijah prayed. Verse 36 and 37. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. He didn't even have time to say amen. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. I mean, if it wasn't enough for the soaked wood to burn, even the stones were com completely consumed and the water in the trench was instantly evaporated. It was this dramatic and powerful answer from God. And in response to Elijah's simple prayer, God answers in dramatic fashion. Now there's a good and obvious application to make here. It just makes me think about prayer. Sometimes we overcomplicate it, but really prayer is simply having a conversation with God. We don't have to have long prayers with big words and the right tone of voice. We just have to be willing to ask, simply, directly, without demanding. And sometimes we even have to pray again and again. 
Because further on in chapter 18, Elijah then does go and pray for rain. And each time he prays, he, he sends his servant to go and look. And each time he, he comes back saying, well, no, I, don't, I didn't see anything. And then finally, on the seventh time, he says, there is a cloud visible. Just this tiny little cloud off in the horizon. And it eventually becomes a terrific rainstorm. One time prayer, seven times I have to say, you know, prayer is a bit of a mystery to me. But I do know that God wants us to have the conversation with us. And when we pray, it is always an expression of our faith. Because we declare our dependence on God, and we show our confidence that we pray to the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. And prayer changes things. And when we don't pray, we miss the opportunity... Um, to see God, often dramatically, answer these prayers. And in this case, the people all realize that the fire can only be a special work of God, and when they saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. They made their choice. And isn't that the response to answer prayer that we want? Not, oh my, my, what a, what a wonderful prayer, but rather, what an awesome God. What an awesome God. And lastly, God speaks quietly. As we move now into chapter 19, Elijah must have thought that his war with Baal was over. He had heard that the people declare their allegiance to God. The people of Israel had turned back to God. It's all good, right? Well, not exactly. Because now Jezebel is really ticked at what happened. And she serves Elijah notice that he is as good as dead. Within a day. I mean, it was a serious threat. She's already killed other prophets. What's one more? And what would we expect from this great man of faith? The one who experienced firsthand God's miraculous provision and God's dramatic answer to prayer. You'd expect, okay, bring it on. Let's go we'd be wrong. Because in chapter 19, verse 3, we read, it's almost hard to read, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. After Mount Carmel, he ran to Jezreel in the, the north, and now he runs for his life to Beersheba in the far south of the promised land. I mean, he runs as far away as absolutely possible. The one who had earlier boldly declared to the widow, hey, don't be afraid, feed me first, is now afraid himself. And he went to Beersheba not because God told him to go, because that's been the pattern all along, but because he was filled with fear. And is he ever down in the dumps? I mean, it's so bad, he wants to die. And so then we first find him alone under a broom tree, and God again provides bread and a jar of water. <laughs> I love it. Just seemed like God can't seem to help himself, providing miraculously again. And then he leaves there, and he travels about 400 kilometers from Beersheba 
to Mount Sinai. Some of your Bibles may say Mount Horeb. It's the same mountain and the, named uh, interchangeably. And it takes him 40 days and 40 nights to make this journey. And he ends up in a cave on this mountain. And here God and Elijah have a conversation. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds with this woe is me attitude. I mean, it's, it really is interesting to me that we can have a man that comes across with such great faith and then suddenly it's just like, whoa, what happened? It seems like he's forgotten the recent past. The miraculous provisions, the raising of life to a, uh, of a death, dead child and the, the mighty and powerful acts of God, the fire and the rain. But it's not unusual to forget what God has done, is it? Especially when we focus on ourselves. It's really incredible to think that the, that the battle with one person has turned this massive victory into overwhelming defeat, at least in Elijah's mind. Of course, he's not the only prophet that is left, but that's how he feels. And so he's in this cave, on the mountain, alone. And God tells him, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And I'm not sure that he actually did. Because it's in verse 13, just a few verses later, that we read that he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And perhaps you're familiar with the sequence of events that take place here. A mighty windstorm. But the Lord was not in the wind. An earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. Fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And that is what Elijah hears, and he goes out and stands at the entrance of the cave. On Mount Carmel, God answered in these dramatic ways. And now on Mount Sinai, God speaks in quiet ways. God tends to reveal himself in quietness. Not always, but often. As the psalmist writes, Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. So the question is, where do we hear God best? In a cave? Maybe. But more likely, it's anywhere that we can be alone in quietness, solitude. When we always have other people around, we, we have to learn to discern God's voice from all the others. But when we are alone, God can whisper and we can read his word and we can pray. And like Elijah in these quiet moments, he then can give us instructions. And he reminds us of his love and grace. He might convict us of sin and then offers forgiveness when we confess and repent. Do you remember the children's Sunday school song? Those of you who go back a few years like me, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day, and you'll, what, grow, grow, grow. It's basic, yes, but it's tried and true. And maybe you, like me, just needed to be reminded this morning of these simple, ordinary disciplines that by the grace of God have extraordinary results. Reading our Bibles, praying, finding quiet times. And you know, Elijah is often mentioned in the New Testament, but I love how James writes about him. James is writing about the power of prayer, and he uses Elijah as an illustration. 
He says, Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. An ordinary guy with extraordinary faith. Right? I like that. As human as we are. As human as we are. A faith in a God who provides miraculously, answers dramatically, and speaks quietly. Let's pray. Father, in the stillness of these moments, I pray that you would speak. I think of how Lynn earlier gave us the opportunity to just think about one thing that you have done. And Lord, maybe it was a reminder of how you have miraculously provided for us or how you dramatically answered some prayer. But Lord, we believe that you are a God who still speaks. And you use your word, your written word, to remind us and reveal truth to us. And so, Lord, I just simply ask that whatever we need to take away as an individual or as a church family, that you would press that deep into our hearts and our souls this morning. And if there's some changes that we need to make in our own patterns and routines of life, that you will enable us to do that so that we can return to some of these ordinary and basic disciplines and see the extraordinary results. We pray these things in Jesus' name.